someone were to ask you, what difference does it make that you are a Christian, what would you say? It's an honest question. Most people, before embarking on a new endeavor, or before making a major purchase, ask the question, what's in it for me? Well, if we are tasked with heralding the gospel of Jesus Christ, with making disciples of all nations, we should be able to answer that question, should they ask. What difference does it make that you are a Christian? The Christian worldview is clear. No one is born a Christian. We are all born sinners, rebels against our creator God. We're all born predisposed to reject his will and his way. We're all born predisposed to disregard the needs of others in favor of our own needs. Selfishness and self-centeredness is the rule of the day for us. The worldview of the secularist is also pretty clear concerning Christianity. It views Christianity as a religion with a certain set of precepts which should be adjusted based on the needs of the society. It's a religion with a certain set of precepts, a certain set of accompanying behaviors. You go to church on Sunday. You may give to church as you would any charity. You do good things. You should generally be nice to other people as long as they don't cross you. The secularist also has a perspective on the teaching of Christianity. God is all love, no judgment. The Christian believes himself to be perfect, no flaws, no faults, no failings. The Christian believes that all of life is a bed of roses, that if they believe enough, nothing bad will ever happen to them. The Christian believes himself to be better than anyone else, more important, morally superior, their views and their actions. The Christian hates or at least looks down upon those who don't share their viewpoint. The worldview of the secularist concerning humanity in general suggests that we're all basically good, that outside pressures cause us to do what some may consider to be evil, that organized religion is the root of most, if not all, discrimination, that all people everywhere should be free to do whatever or be whatever they want, no matter the consequences to others. God does not exist. If he does exist, he never judges or condemns and is essentially impotent when it comes to the dealings of mankind. Religion is good insofar as it helps us to be nice to others, but there's no need to speak of change or transformation. It may give some guidelines, but we're all basically good anyway, so we can figure it out on our own. I'll ask again, what difference does it make that you are a Christian? I think the book of James seeks to answer that question. He doesn't answer that question directly necessarily, but rather he answers it indirectly by the issues that he addresses as he goes through, by the themes presented, the commands given, the illustrations throughout the letter. Well, this morning as we begin a series in the book of James, I want to take some time, as I did with Philippians and Ephesians, to give us an overview of the book and some background for our consideration There's a lot in the book of James. There's a lot of what has been misunderstood throughout the book of James, a lot of different debates on the subject matter. I think it'll be helpful for us as we begin our study to think through some of these things from a broad perspective and to really hear from James his perspective on what kind of difference our faith should actually make. And that's really what I want you to think about as we study through the letter of James. The letter of James, the message is that the faith of the New Testament, the religion of the New Testament, the quality of 
faith in the New Testament is a faith that works. Your faith ought to make you different, in other words. James's greatest concern throughout the letter is stressing the importance for Christians to live out their faith. Of course, Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that yes, we've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, but we've been saved for good works. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10. He also says something similar in Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 12. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. We're not saved by our good works but we're ultimately saved by the good work of Jesus. His righteous life, his substitutionary death on the cross and subsequent resurrection, his work as our savior is what secures our new life before God. That new life is granted by faith in the finished work of Christ While we're not saved by our good works, we are saved for good works. In Jesus' words, the salvation that he gives provides us a qualitatively different kind of life. In John chapter 3, he called it the new birth or the birth from above. Our heart is changed. Our mind is changed. Our desires are changed. Our worldview is changed. Our understanding of who God is and who we are as humanity is changed. It is made new. As a result of this qualitatively new life, we are now live differently. And as a part of that different kind of life, that new born again life, that born from above life, as a result of that new life, our works are different. If you have true faith, that faith will change your heart, your heart motives, your heart desires. It'll change your worldview. Again, it'll change the way you view what happens to you in life. It'll change the way you think of others. And again, thus your behavior will be different. It'll be different not because you're a part of a particular religion, but because your heart will be different. Your love for God and the things of God will be different. It ought to be if you have genuine saving faith. If your heart is not different, but your behavior is different, then you're living a lie. That's hypocrisy. If your heart is different, but your behavior is not different, you're being disobedient. And James is encouraging believers who have been changed as a result of their faith in the Lord of glory to live out their faith and all of its implications through their obedience to Christ. Again, when you think of James, the letter of James, think my faith in the Lord Jesus ought to create new life in me that lives different than I've ever lived before. If your life is not different after your faith in Christ, then you do not have genuine saving faith in Christ. That's what the New Testament teaches. But if your life is different, if you have a new, qualitatively different kind of life on the inside, then that should make a difference on the outside in in what you do, in your choices. Knowing this will help each of us in our walk so that we may seek to walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord to accomplish his purposes. And also, since we live our life of faith in community, it'll help us to call one another to the same kind of faith and obedience, because that's what we ought to be doing also. Well, before we dive into the details of the background um, of the letter, let's pray and ask the Lord for us to help us as we begin this study. 
Lord, I thank you for another day and thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter, the letter of James. I pray that as we begin this study, even as we think about some of the, the background and the, um, the, get a, a better sense of an overview of the letter, I pray, God, that you would open our eyes to see and to hear what you want for your people to see and hear from your word. I pray that you would humble our hearts, help us to have listening hearts, as Solomon prayed, so that we may gain wisdom. Help us to grow in a desire for your word, for your truth, and especially to live out your truth in our everyday lives. Pray, Lord, that you would speak for your servants are listening. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, when it comes to the canon of scripture, you may have heard that term before. The canon of scripture is the body of books or letters included in the list of the recognized New Testament. There were multiple tests performed to to recognize the canon. The letter had to be written by an apostle in the New Testament or someone closely related to the apostle in the case of Luke and Mark and, and Hebrews, for example, and, and James. It also had to agree in doctrine with the rest of the recognized texts in Scripture. There were some texts that were clearly recognized as having been written by the apostles really from the beginning, and they were copied and used regularly throughout the church. And therefore, there was a body of theology to pull from as a standard for the New Testament canon. You hear the phrase often, let Scripture interpret Scripture in theology, If a letter or book that was put forth as a part of the New Testament scripture contradicted the theology of the Gospels as written by the apostles, again with the exception of Luke, or the teaching of Jesus as taught by the apostles and passed down to the church, or if it contradicted the theology of the Old Testament in radical ways, again acknowledging that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, then it was immediately discarded. And there are a lot of books floating around out there. And every once in a while, every, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years, you'll hear some story come out about this, this book that was found and how the church has been, you know, hiding this book for years and, and all that nonsense when it's been around for thousands of years, but the church rejected it already as a part of the canon. Well, there are many other aspects of these criteria in the mind of the church in those early days. What was certain is that God had spoken his word is authoritative and that the churches it was the church's duty to recognize that God was speaking and to recognize through whom God was speaking and in that respect the church did not invent the canon or the text the the recognized set of new testament letters the church didn't create it but rather they recognized that these things were indeed the word of God James would have likely been one of the last books recognized as a part of the canon of Scripture. Looking back, many have surmised that there was perhaps questions as whether or not it was James, um, the brother of Jesus, or whether someone else wrote the letter. And even if it was him, he wasn't a member of the Twelve, so of course that would have given people some pause. Also, as you read through the letter, there are certain aspects that at first glance may appear contradictory to some of the New Testament teachings, there's a prevailing confusion about James's teaching on justification. Does James' teach, teaching on justification contradict Paul's teaching on justification? We'll touch on that in just a little bit. 
among other things. We'll discuss some of those discrepancies, but clearly, as the conversation continued concerning the letter of James, these issues were dispelled, and it was eventually accepted as a part of the canon of the New Testament scripture, and that's been settled now for, I don't know, nearly uh, 2,000 years. So, Concerning the authorship of James, which again would have been one of the deciding factors in including it in the canon, the letter itself simply reads in chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ of the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And we are accustomed to reading Paul's letters, and they often include additional information, maybe a statement of his apostleship, maybe remarks about salvation. But this text doesn't have any additional words or any additional notes about the writer. In fact, there's no additional biographical information in the letter at all. It is as if either the writer felt that the biographical information was unimportant or else he was well known enough that he needed to add no additional biographical information. And I think there's probably a measure of truth to both of those. If you think about it, if you receive a letter in the mail addressed from Catonsville Baptist Church and you maybe you read through the letter and it's talking about church matters and then at the end of the letter you see it signed by some guy named Rod, you're going to assume that that guy is, is Pastor Rod, right? I mean, at that point, because it's a letter coming from the Catonsville Baptist Church, it's pertaining to church matters, and it's signed by a guy named Rod, there's no reason to assume that it's anyone other than the pastor of the church. And that's what we have here in the case of James. James was so well-known. He was a person who was so well-known at the time that this letter was written and circulated that he really needed to say nothing else. He didn't have to say anything else about himself. You pick up this letter and you see that it's from James and you're like, oh yeah, that's, that's that guy. I know that guy. The only person who would have fit this description would have been James, the brother of Jesus. At the time, he would have been a leader in the church of Jerusalem. Therefore, again, he would have had no need to give any additional information about who he was in the letter. James, the brother of Jesus, was probably the oldest of the four half-brothers of Jesus as he's listed first in both Matthew chapter 13 and also Mark chapter 6. Jesus' family, his brothers, included what at times have accompanied him during his earthly ministry, However, they did not believe in him until after the resurrection. And the reason for this appears to have been his post-resurrection appearance to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says this, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Then he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. James, the James reference in 1 Corinthians 15 would have been James, Jesus' half-brother. One author said it this way concerning James' evolution as a leader in the Christian church after the resurrection of Jesus. He said this, quote, it is likely that James witnessed Jesus' resurrection, became a believer, then also witnessed Jesus' ascension, the reconstitution of the twelve, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and the formation of the church. It is no wonder that James became an important leader in the early church, especially among Jewish Christians. 
His prominence is clear from the story of Peter being rescued from imprisonment by Harold, who had just killed James, the brother of John. And he says, note Peter's request. Peter said at that time in Acts chapter 12, tell these things to James and to the brothers. That James was to be made aware indicates that he was a major figure in the Jerusalem church, end quote. Paul would also reference James as a leader in the church in Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, also referring to him there as one of the apostles. This would have been apostle in an expanded sense of the term. He was not one of the 12, but he did see the risen Savior. He was with him during his earthly ministry. These were the tests of the apostles as Paul outlines them. He was there during the foundational months and years of the early church. This is certainly not true of those who call themselves apostles today. That's just utter nonsense, but I'll save that for another sermon. But we see James acting in a clearly authoritative way in Acts chapter 15. At the time, some Jewish leaders were insisting upon circumcision as a requirement for salvation. Paul and Barnabas were there as apostles to the Gentiles, as having been sent to preach the good news to the Gentiles. Peter preached a short sermon exhorting the brethren to understand that, yes, God was doing something new among the Gentiles and that they shouldn't be hindered from coming to the faith. And then after all of that was said, we see James kind of standing up almost like in a position of a moderator or overseer. He wasn't given any kind of title or any kind of introduction at that time either. But we just, we, we hear all of this stuff happening in conversation, people just kind of talking back and forth about this issue. And then James stands up and he makes a statement and that completely closes the matter out. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from a people take from them a people for his name. And then he says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. And again, after James spoke, discussion was over. And everyone just kind of concluded, all right, well, that's what we're going to do. So clearly, James had a very authoritative and commanding role in the early church. Another illustration of this is found in Acts chapter 21. Paul returned to Jerusalem to give a report, and it says specifically to James and to the elders of the church there. And James let Paul know that there was some dissension that had been brewing as a result of false reports concerning Paul's ministry. Some were claiming that Paul had abandoned and completely rejected the law. In order to demonstrate the falseness of this claim, James encouraged Paul to go to the temple to perform some rites of purification. And Paul relented to that request and he did it. I have a very lengthy quote that I want to share from an author who commented on this passage. I think it's helpful for us to think through the relationship between James and his role in the church of Jerusalem, and Paul in his role as an apostle to the Gentiles. This is a longer quote, but just bear with me. It says, and I quote, Acts chapter 21 also sheds light on James, Paul, and their relationship. For example, it shows how people misinterpreted Paul's teaching concerning the law. Paul preached that justification was by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. But many Jewish Christians construed Paul to be teaching that the law was unimportant. 
Paul taught that circumcision was not necessary for salvation, but he was rumored to be teaching Jewish Christians not to circumcise their children. Acts 21 also shows the ministry context in Jerusalem. Paul was preaching the gospel to Gentiles and declaring that they could be saved apart from the Jewish works of the law. James was preaching the gospel to the Jews and needed to show how Christianity is consistent with the extension of and the climax of the law and its teachings. These contextual differences are quite significant to our interpretation of Paul and James. Paul held a high view of the law, but stressed that salvation comes in union with Christ and his saving work and is initiated by and brought about by God's grace and is received by faith, not through circumcision, eating the right food, keeping the Sabbath, or performing good deeds. Neither being Jewish nor keeping the law brought about salvation, God did. And because of this, Gentiles were to be received as equal members of the people of God. He goes on. Thankfully, Paul and his theology have received so much attention that his context and emphasis are now often understood, though there is dispute regarding the details. The same cannot be said for James, however, as his writing and context are often overlooked. And here's kind of the crux of the matter. James wrote to help Jewish Christians to understand how the coming of the Messiah inaugurated the new age and how this should shape their understanding of salvation, the law, the Gentiles, the covenant, and the people of God. James had the monumental task of showing how Christianity is the extension and fulfillment of Judaism and how this was articulated by the prophets of old. He led the Jerusalem church at a time when the city was tense with rising Jewish nationalism, political unrest, and Roman occupation. Jewish Christians were likely taking flack from the Romans on one side and Jewish loyalists on the other side. James and the Jerusalem church did not share the traditional anti-Gentile spirit. Instead, they were caught in the middle trying to relate to and evangelize Jews and yet support and defend the Gentile mission. That is why James made the purification request of Paul, and that is why Paul himself, passionate about salvation of the Jews, we see that in Paul's writings, humbled himself and complied. Both James and Paul desired to show that Paul was a loyal Jew and that outreach to the Gentiles was not anti-Jewish. Well, that was a bit of a mouthful, but I hope you get that there's a difference and there's a context in which both Paul wrote as writing primarily to a Gentile audience And there's a context in which James wrote, writing primarily to a Jewish audience and trying to help them to understand their position as Jewish believers in Christ. And how all of what they had believed before really led to their faith in Christ and the fulfillment of the promises in Christ. Well, there isn't much else by way of historical record about James, the brother of Jesus, beyond Acts chapter 21. Traditionally, it is said that he was the first bishop of Jerusalem, which, given his influence in Acts chapter 15, would kind of make sense, bishop, overseer, pastor. He's also said to have been nicknamed James the Just because of his, quote, devotion to prayer and faithfulness to the law. If that is true, we certainly see a clear emphasis on prayer and also a Christian understanding of the law as we read through the letter of James. Many suspected James would have written this letter from Jerusalem to Jewish Christians sometimes between 40 and 46 AD or 46 and 40 AD. And tradition has it that James was martyred in Jerusalem around 62 AD. 
Now, with all that background information, it's no wonder why he would have easily gotten away with writing a letter addressed only as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, who was the audience? Well, I think we've already kind of uh, worked through that. But again, James says that he is a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. And this is a typical Jewish way of referring to the 12 tribes of Israel. Peter has a similar a similar kind of statement in 1 Peter chapter 1. He, he references the elect exiles of the dispersion. This reference as well as the very Jewish flavor of the letter, including a reference to meeting in a synagogue in chapter 2, really supports the context of the writing. The church composed primarily of Jews at that time was still centralized in Jerusalem. James would have written this letter in order to reach out to those believers who first believed at Pentecost, but who would have gone back to their respective cities. Remember, Pentecost would have brought Jews in from all over the known world at the time to celebrate and to worship there in Jerusalem. But they would have gone back to their respective cities afterwards. And so James wrote this letter to reach out to them after they'd gone back, after they'd gone back to their respective cities, to their synagogues, to encourage them in their faith and their new faith in Christ. These were Jewish Christians dispersed throughout the nations. James, as a shepherd, wanted to encourage them wherever they were in whatever circumstance they found themselves in. Now, moving on, a lot has been said also about the style of the letter of James. It's clearly a letter, but the arrangement of the material as we go through is not quite as clear-cut as some of Paul's letters. This seems to be the result of James' reliance on the Old Testament. At some points in the letter, James reads more like an Old Testament prophetic book or maybe even the book of Proverbs, and it does a a straight letter. We've talked about wisdom literature before, the biblical idea of wisdom that it provides skill for living, in particular in the Old Testament. The Old Testament understanding of wisdom involves the fear of the Lord, knowing that the Lord is God, that he's sovereign, that he rules over all, and that we will be accountable to him in the end for how we've lived our lives, and thus we must live life well. That's really what James is all about. Similar to the Old Testament prophets and wisdom literature, the letter of James is replete with analogies. We see wind-tossed waves in chapter 1, verse 6, withering plants in chapter 1, verse 10, self-inspection using a mirror in chapter 1, verse 23, a dead body in chapter 2, verse 26, bridling a horse in chapter 3, verse 3, turning a ship also in chapter 3, a forest fire, the taming of wild beasts, the impossible fountain of fresh and bitter water, all of these in chapter 3, impossible vine of grape and figs, an ephemeral mist, clothes consumed by moths, rust behaving like fire, farmers waiting for rain, and rain watering the earth. All of these analogies and these uh, word pictures, these images that, that James uses to teach are very reminiscent of Old Testament prophetic literature, Old Testament poetic literature. Of the Jewish nature of James' letter, one author commented this. He said, The epistle's distinctively Jewish character is in keeping with the picture of James given in Acts 15 and 21. The book of James contains four direct quotes of the Old Testament and more than 40 Old Testament allusions. In addition, James expresses himself in distinctly Old Testament terms, beginning in the first verse with a reference to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. James describes the gospel as a law of liberty. 
He describes his reader's meeting place in the Greek word, using the Greek word transliterated as synagogue. In chapter 4, verse 4, he uses the common Old Testament figure of adultery to describe spiritual defection. Contemporary Jewish abuses regarding oath-taking are condemned in chapter 5, verse 12. The prominent Old Testament figure of Elijah appears as an example of power and righteous prayer. Other Old Testament important names such as Abraham, Rahab, and Job also appear in James' epistle. And finally, James employs not only New Testament um, language concerning the Lord, but also an Old Testament title for God, the Lord of Sabaoth, or the Lord of Hosts. While we typically think, moreover, of everything from Matthew onward as pertaining to the New Covenant, really the time of the Gospels, the life of Jesus, was still operating under the Old Covenant, The new covenant was cut or initiated by the shed blood of Christ on the cross. Therefore, the ministry of Jesus and his teaching was in the context of the old covenant in explanation and fulfillment of the law. The Sermon of the Mount was really just that. It was an explanation and correction of misunderstandings of how the law was to be correctly understood and applied. Many have commented that James's letter has a striking number of similarities to and is clearly influenced also by the Sermon on the Mount as delivered by Jesus. And this coincides really with my earlier statement that a part of James's ministry involved helping Christians to think through the place of the law for the church today. And the shorter answer is that, yes, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. So we're no longer bound to keep the law as an expression of faith or to satisfy the covenant. And yet the ethical and moral aspects of the law are still valid for today. Jesus said that the law is summed up in two commands. Love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's still binding for us today. We still ought to love God with all of who we are and all of what we have. And we still ought to love one another as we love ourselves. I've seen a number of lists referencing James's text and comparing it to the Sermon of the Mount, ranging anywhere from 21 to to 30 references and perhaps even more And these are usually indirect allusions to Jesus' teaching. But it is clear, regardless of how many you see, that James was well-versed with the teaching of Jesus concerning the nature of true faith, what true faith should look like. And his desire was to bridge the gap for these Jewish Christians between the teaching under the Old Covenant and teaching under the New Covenant for believers in Christ. Or what about themes in the letter of James. There are many different themes that we'll see and we'll look at in more detail as we go through the letter of James. I think the the primary thrust of James, as I've said already, is James's desire to encourage believers to live out their faith. He clearly has believers in Jesus in mind throughout the letter. He refers to himself as a servant of God, and that's pretty normal in Jewish theology, but he also says, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, kind of making clear there that he's moving beyond the Old Testament understanding of who God is and of serving God, and he's now putting himself in subjection to Jesus Christ as Lord. Moreover, he frequently refers to believers as my brothers. Throughout the letter, we see that repeated over and over again. I have faith in the Lord Jesus, and you, my brothers, also have faith in the Lord Jesus. And he encourages them frequently to consider faith. 
faith as a term is frequently used throughout the text. He talks about them praying in faith in chapter 1 and also in chapter 5. He talks about them not holding partia- showing partiality for those who have faith in the Lord Jesus in chapter 2. He says in chapter 2, verse 14, what good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And really the question is, can that kind of faith save him? We'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. One author suggested along these lines that the letter of James is in fact intended to serve as a standard by which we can measure if our faith is genuine saving faith or not. He said James presents a series of tests by which the genuineness of salvation can be determined for believers. This is perhaps a good way to think about it. Do you have genuine saving faith? If you want to know the answer to that question, read the letter of James and figure out, does your life measure up to that? Does my neighbor or family member who professes faith in Christ, does the person I sit next to on Sunday morning who professes faith in Christ have a faith like this? I think this is why so many churches have unbelieving members on their role. Because when people asked when they first professed faith in Christ, if they believed, they never asked the question again. We never asked them the question, what difference has Jesus made in your life today? Yes, you profess faith in Christ two years ago, 12 years ago, 22 years ago. But what difference did Jesus make in your life today? Are you living as if you have faith in Jesus today? Regardless of what profession you made before. Do you have saving faith or is it like the faith of those in the parable of the sower when Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 13 seed was thrown on rocky ground which seems to grow but it takes no root and so eventually it, it, it withers up and dies or seed that is thrown in thorns and is later choked out by the deceitfulness of the world is that what your faith was like you professed faith at some point in the past and so everyone just assumed, yeah, they profess faith in Christ. Their name's on the roll, so they must be believers, right? Well, how are you living today? I heard someone once say that though we are not heart detectors, meaning we can't know what's in the heart of someone who professes faith in Christ, we're not heart detectors, but we should be fruit inspectors. Meaning we should pay careful attention to the kind of fruit that is born from the life of one who claims to be a Christian. It's not enough for us in the church to be okay with having a whole room full of people who profess faith in Jesus, but who live like the devil Monday through Saturday. Of course, we're not talking about perfection. We're not talking about those who perfectly keep the law of God or who perfectly keep whatever laws we put forth as a church. We're talking about the progression of their lives. Does their life clearly appear to be lived by faith in Jesus Christ. I think if we asked ourselves that question more, perhaps the church would be more holy. Perhaps she would be more pure. Perhaps she'd be more ready to accomplish the Great Commission. Another theme in the book of James is that of trials and suffering. And that's whether directly or indirectly. We see that frequently. I'm frequently discussing suffering and um, 
whether that's the suffering that you encounter, like he talks about in chapter 1 or chapter 5, or indirectly suffering through infighting, um, broken relationships as in chapter 4, or suffering from some oppression that you experience as in the oppression of the rich in chapter 5. The theme of suffering hangs as a shadow over the entire letter as James seeks to address the clear reality that the people of God have and do suffer. Sometimes we suffer as a result of living in a fallen world with broken bodies. Sometimes we suffer as a result of sin, someone else's sin impacting us or the consequences of our own sin. The bottom line is that we do suffer. The Bible doesn't paint a picture otherwise. We read from 1 Peter chapter 4 earlier, and Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes among you. It's coming for your testing. Don't be surprised when it happens. As we suffer, we need to be reminded to endure. That's another theme, along with suffering. To patiently endure suffering, to remain steadfast in faith until the end. The truth is that the hope we have in the midst of our suffering is not that the Lord will rescue us or deliver us from suffering today. He may. But ultimately, the hope that we have is that God is in control of all suffering that he is with us in the midst of our suffering, that ultimately he will deliver us from all suffering and reward us for our faithfulness as we remain faithful to him in the midst of our suffering. In the context of living out your faith and learning to suffer well is a theme of prayer that runs frequently throughout the book of James. And I said earlier that James was known as a man of prayer in the first two main sections where James directly references prayers, chapter 1 and also chapter 5. In chapter 1, he encourages prayer and faith for wisdom in the midst of trials. Chapter 5, he encourages prayer for those who are suffering sick or in sin. Prayer is a necessary commodity for believers, and so James leans in on this and encourages them to express their faith by means of prayer. Well, there are a lot more themes we could discuss. Wisdom, the character of God, the law, the tongue, the rich and the poor. I'll end by pointing out that um, one that has caused a great deal of discussion concerning the letter of James throughout the years is the theme of justification in James. The main thrust of this argument that James makes about justification is in chapter 2. I've mentioned this already, but there James says that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith without works is dead. He goes on there to reference Abraham in chapter 2, verse 21, where he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Then he quotes from Genesis. And in Genesis, it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then James states plainly, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. James is saying pretty clearly that we're justified by works. What does he mean by that? Paul also quotes from this passage in Genesis. And he quotes this same passage that James references in Romans chapter 4. And Paul says there that the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. In other words, it's not our works that leads to righteousness, us being justified by God, but it is our faith. So which one is it? Are we justified by works or are we justified by faith? You can see why there would be so much discussion on this point. 
Well, we'll certainly return to this when we get to that point in the letter, but the bottom line is that when Paul says that we're justified by faith in Christ alone, he says again in Romans, it is not to the one who works but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. He's, of course, absolutely right. That's the Protestant Reformation in a nutshell. Justification before God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. There's no work that we can perform to be justified before God in a judicial sense. As far as our sin is concerned, before God, we owe a debt, a debt that we cannot pay. Jesus paid the debt for us. We cannot do anything to pay our own debt. Jesus alone has done everything to pay the debt that we owe, including the keeping of the law, his death on the cross, his resurrection. All of that is what leads to our justification before God. We are justified in a judicial sense by faith alone in the finished work of Christ. But in a practical sense, that faith that we claim to have can only be justified by works. We can say that we have faith in God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but the only real way to prove that we have that faith is by the way we live, by the things we do. In other words, if you say you know Jesus, but again, live like the devil, can that faith save you? If you say you know and love Jesus, but care nothing for the things of God, care nothing for the word of God, care nothing for the fellowship of God's people, care nothing for the preaching of the gospel, care nothing for holiness, can that really be saving faith? And the answer that James would say is no, absolutely not. Doesn't matter how much you profess it. If you aren't living it, there's no faith. There's no saving faith there. This is not incompatible with Paul's teaching. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, again, I mentioned this earlier, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's no work that we can do to be justified before God. But then he says in chapter 2, verse 10, right after that, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. God prepared good works for us who are saved by grace to walk in. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus, that faith should be lived out. We should be able to see it. When author said it this way, faith and works are not antithetical but complementary, cause and effect. Both are necessary and inseparable. Faith is the inspiration of works, and works are the proof of faith. Now, I'll comment briefly on the structure of the letter of James, and there's been a lot of conversation and discussion about the way James and the organizes his material again it it does read more like an old testament prophetic book or maybe even the proverbs and the way some of the material is arranged but the best um kind of outline and again I'll, i'll share the outline with you as we go through it but the best kind of outline that i've found so far is um, chapter one, verse one is, is really the only introductory, uh, introductory material proper that we have. But chapter one as a whole from verses two through 27 seems to be more of a summary statement of what he is about to say. So he, he mentions a number of different themes throughout chapter, chapter one, um, that he then picks up and expands on throughout the rest of the letter. 
And so chapter 1, some have kind of referred to it as, you know, chapter 1, verse 1 is the introduction proper, and then chapter 1, verses 2 through 27 is kind of like a, a secondary introduction to the letter, where he gives an overview of all the themes in the letter. And then chapter 2 and following all the way up to the end, chapter 5, verse 20, is the main body of the letter where he works through a number of different aspects of, of what it means to live out their faith. And again, chapter one, he's talking about persistence in the context of trial, persistently living out your faith in the context of trials. And then he comes to chapter one, verses 26 and 27. And he says, kind of as a conclusion to the section, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this person's religious is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James is really trying to drive home at the end of chapter one is this kind of introductory section that his concern his main desire is to see that they are living out their faith pure and undefiled religion what does it mean to have faith in the Lord Jesus what does it look like and then chapter 2 onward you have a series of themes a series of discussions about what that pure and undefiled religion should look like that's really the rest of the book of James so again, just that introductory material in chapter one, and then the rest of it is all, what does it look like to show faith? What does it look like to live by faith in Christ, to walk in obedience? Well, I know that was a lot to digest in a short period of time. I don't expect for you guys to have absorbed all of that background information, but I think it's good to have an overview of an entire letter before diving into the details. If you don't remember all of the details and stuff that we talked about this morning, that's okay. You can go back and listen to it again if you want. Um, but it's okay if you don't get all the introductory stuff. I think um, the most important thing for us to remember is that James's concern, his main concern, is to encourage believers to live out their faith. That genuine faith changes lives. And so your life ought to look differently if you say you have faith in the Lord Jesus. Genuine faith in Jesus is a faith that works. It is an obedient kind of faith. Again, I asked the question earlier, if someone were to ask you, what difference does it make that you are a Christian? What would you say? The question is, what difference does it make in your life? In other words, how has your faith made you different as a believer? James would say, if you cannot answer that question, then you're probably not truly a believer. If your faith has made no difference, then made, made no difference to you, then you don't belong to Christ. To the contrary, your faith ought to make a difference. And it is the Lord, after all, who has in James' word, in James chapter 1, of his own will brought us forth that we might be kind of a first fruits of his creatures. God brought us forth by the word of truth. He has given us the new birth, and that new birth leads to a new kind of life. And that new kind of life ought to be lived in a way that honors Jesus Christ as Lord. It ought to be lived in obedience to him. God gave us a new birth, not so that we would have a get out of hell free card, but so that we would be set apart to do his work. Again, to make disciples of all nations for his glory. The reality is that the church will fail to do his work, to make disciples, if we don't understand that very simple truth. If we're living like the world, why should they ever listen to us? 
Why should they listen to us when we talk about a savior who changes lives? If our lives look no different to him. One writer said it this way, the community God seeks for the sake of his mission is to be a community shaped by his own ethical character with specific attention to righteousness and justice in a world filled with oppression and injustice. Only such a community can be a blessing to the nations. And that's our greater mission, is it not? To make disciples of all nations. The only way we can do that is if we're living for the glory of God alone as if we're living out our faith in a way that pleases him, in a way that magnifies his name. Let us pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for James and for all of what um, we hope to learn through James's letter. I pray, Father, as we've uh, done this, uh, this brief overview of the book of James, that you would help us to remember what appears to be James's main point, that faith without works is dead. Help us to remember that Jesus, by virtue of his sacrificial death on the cross, has effected new life in us and that that new life works. It's not passive. It's not inactive, impotent. That new life that Jesus gives us makes a difference. And if our life is no different than it was before we profess faith in Christ and we don't belong to him. But if we do have that new qualitative life, we ought to live it out. We ought to live it out both for our collective good, for the good of the nations who hear the gospel and for the glory of the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. So we pray this all in his blessed name. Amen.